Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done uh, 500 and something of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site. My guest today is Peter Mount Shasta. Hi, Peter. Hi, Rick. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Thank you. And I think Irene was the one that contacted me. So thank you, Irene. Yeah, you know, Irene's been talking about you for a couple of years. She keeps saying, Peter Mount Shasta, he looks interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I was kind of dragging my feet. I think, eh, Mount Shasta, he's, that sounds yeah. kind of woo-woo. And I, I've known yeah, a couple yeah. of people who claim to be channeling St. <laughs> Germain and they were egomaniacs. Yeah, 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 right. I know. I hear you. In fact, you had some of those same reservations, I think, especially about, oh, yeah. about changing your name to Mount Shasta. You thought, oh, I'm yeah, not going right, to do that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I had an argument with St. Germain. Yeah. yeah, but I've gotten to know you. Um, I've read mm-hmm. this book in its entirety, oh, yeah. your first wow. book. There's the young yeah. Peter. That's what he used to look like. My passport. Picture. Yeah. Yeah. And this book, I've gotten about two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through. Your okay. second one, Apprentice to okay. the Master. Very interesting books. Well, these spiritual biographies can be a lot of fun. There's all sorts of interesting mm. stories. I've, you know, I've, Everybody's read Yogananda's book. And I, mm-hmm. I interviewed a guy named Sri M a couple of times. And he, he has oh, some, yeah. You know Sri M? Yeah. Yeah, he's got some great stories and bill mcdonald amazing stuff happening to him so i'm a kind of an interesting mix of um <laughs> credulity and incredulity yeah. you know or i, I give right. everybody the benefit of the doubt but i also take them with a grain yeah. of salt i don't feel any great importance in believing something for the sake of believing yeah. it but i'm open-minded and i realize that that the world the universe is full of mysteries and wonders that we can't even comprehend. So I, I, I keep an open mind. Good. That's great. Yeah, yeah I, I was uh, very skeptical. In fact, I'm still pretty much of a scientist. My father was a scientist, and uh, I went to college to study aeronautical engineering. I used to build rockets and stuff like that. And uh, I never believed anything I didn't prove for myself, you know. Yeah. And I didn't start to really get into spiritual stuff till I moved to New York City and I felt I needed to do something for my health, you know, mm-hmm. just living in the city. You know, I saw so I, someone said, try Hatha Yoga. So right away at the first, the first asana I did, you know, which was, you know, something like simple, like lift your legs and hold them up for 30 seconds and then relax for 30 seconds. Right away, I started feeling energy going mm-hmm. through my body. Mm-hmm. And I said, there is something here that is not just physical. You know, there's an energy. So I went right out to Weiser's bookstore, metaphysical bookstore, and what's your best book on mysticism? And they gave me the biography, I think, of Ramakrishna, or mm-hmm. I guess it was Vivekananda. And that got me going. You know, I right away, it was just like I was on fire and then of course going to india and everything but yeah i i always test everything you know that's I think it's I, a good I, attitude yeah. I, I don't th- yeah. I, you know yeah. i i think that not only are spirituality and science not incompatible but they're mm. they're complementary and that mm. true 
science is spiritual and true spirituality is scientific. Absolutely. Yeah. What could be more woo-woo than quantum mechanics? Yeah, really. <laughs> Spooky action at a distance, as Einstein put one of those things, you know, complementarity. Yeah. It's funny because the scientific community in general has its heels dug in pretty firmly, resisting the anomalies that are bombarding it, you know, from quantum mechanics and from all sorts of things like near-death experiences and telepathy and Guys like Rupert Sheldrake have their TED Talks taken down because they venture too far into woo-woo territory. But Mm. eventually that edifice is going to crumble because there are things which the scientific instrumentality and and methods insofar as we've used it cannot fathom, cannot probe. And yet spiritual people have been probing it for thousands Mm -hmm. of years. And if we really want to know what's going on, which is what science wants, we're going to have to open it up Absolutely. Definitely. You know, I bet you a lot of people listening to this can relate to what you just said about, you know, your first foray into spirituality. You saw, it suddenly dawned on you that, hey, there's something to this. And the same thing happened to yeah. me at a certain point. There was like this uh-huh. aha moment where I thought, uh-huh. oh, yeah, enlightenment. That's what it's all about. You know, I'm sure we, we, we would probably both feel we've had some past life stuff going on with, with that. And oh, yeah. we're just picking right. up where we left off. My first experience really of what I guess you'd call transcendental awareness was, you know, I'd been doing this Hatha yoga. I was studying with uh, Swami Vivekananda, not, I mean, not Vivekananda, excuse me. Um, Sajidananda. Sajidananda, yeah. Get your Swami I went, I'm not that, I'm not that old, you know, <laughs> right. but uh, Sajidananda. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, he was a great guy, twinkly eyes, and he used to walk in and say, I know you're, Favorite Austin is Savasana, the corpse right. pose, you know. Yeah. This is living in New York City. Everyone was stressed out and they'd just go in and lie down, you know, and go to sleep. People would be snoring when he walked in. <laughs> yeah. But I went to a Rabbi Shankar doing... concert one time in Danbury, Connecticut, and he walked in mm-hmm. with a couple of the young rascals who were into his oh, music. Yeah. Yeah. I'm into his oh. into his yeah. teaching. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I'd been doing his integral yoga for maybe, I don't know, a few weeks or a month. And then I, you know, I, I do it in my apartment on the Lower East Side. I was about a, two blocks from Allen Ginsberg's place. I used to run into him on the street all the time. So I was doing this uh, Hatha yoga, and then at the end, the corpse pose. And I guess one of the masters decided it was time for me to experience what it was all about. Mm-hmm. And I went into this nirvikalpa samadhi, I guess, where there was... There was no me at all. It was just light and bliss and the cosmic ohm. And, but there was no self at all. It was just being, pure being. Nice. And uh, I don't know how long I was there. Whenever I've had one of those experiences, what brings me back is the phone ringing. And it's always <laughs> the wrong, wrong number. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think in the master, we got to bring Peter back. So yeah. anyway, for about the next four or five days, I was wandering around in bliss, you know, and there, there were always people on the Lower East Side trying to rob me, hold me up on the street and pull mm-hmm. knives on me. And after this experience, they'd get about five feet away and it was like they would bounce off of my aura. Mm-hmm. I'd just look at them and smile and they, they couldn't come near me. Interesting. I was just emanating all of this shakti, you know. Huh. So that yeah. showed me that it was a real thing that Vivekananda and Ramakrishna were talking about, you know. 
it's called a kavach in, in Sanskrit, which means like an armor. Mm. And uh, there's actually ah. a verse in the Yoga Sutras which mm. says something like, in the vicinity of yoga mm. practice, mm. violence or incoherence has to stay at a distance. Mm. Not long after that, I heard Ramdas interviewed on National Public Radio. It was that first interview that they did where he told about this transformation from Richard Alpert, Harvard psychology professor, to finding his guru in India and all that. At the end of listening to that, well, in my mind was like, well, maybe I have a guru somewhere. And then all of a sudden, I was sitting there, I saw the world, I was up above India, and someone hit me in the third eye from someplace in northern India. And I felt like there's somebody calling me in India. So you mean like, you just had a visual kind of impression it was that like someone was a calling light you hit from me there. in the third yeah. eye and i saw it was coming from northern india you could actually see the geography of india and you knew yeah it. Okay. yeah it was just like my third eye opened and i mm-hmm. i saw where this was coming from mm-hmm. this is right at the end of the ramdas interview you know and i yeah. thought well that's maharaji calling me you know so i get Neem over there of course yeah Neem Kuril, yeah he right. uh, he appeared to me on my last birthday you know, he ignored me the whole time I was, or seemed to ignore me, you know, because, you know, the message was you've got to find it inside. Right. So after 50 years, he came to me on my last birthday, gave me a hug, and he said, so you finally got it. You know, it's there, it's in you all the time. So when you say a thing like that, just to help people relate to what you're saying, yeah. how concrete was that experience? I mean, you're not saying like others could have seen it or it was a physical thing that he walked through the door, but you're kind of in your inner vision or your... Oh, this was a dream. A dream. A dream. Yeah. But, you know, very... I don't have a lot of dreams and I, I don't even usually think about him, although I have a blanket that he blessed mm-hmm. that I sit on all the time. It's mm-hmm. on my chair. And I do have his picture up. because yeah. Sometimes people tell me, People don't even know who he was. They say, I see this old guy sitting in your chair, this fat Indian guy who's mostly naked. Who is that guy? And I show him the picture. That's the guy who's sitting in your chair. There's a chair when I see people, I teach meditation to them, and they'll say, you turned into this guy. And I go, well, I don't know. I don't see him, you know? So I realized he was doing some kind of number on me, you know? So then the night before my birthday, he came in a dream and gave me a hug. Now, the last time I saw him in India, he picked up a rock and threatened to throw it at me. So I was going to say something about him that kind of pertains to what's happening now in the world. Sure. There's a thing called the Kumbh Mela in India. Right. It's kind of like the spiritual Woodstock. And they have it someplace in India every year. The big one is every 12 years. And this was one of the smaller ones. But still, you, you know, two or three million people show up. And um, he recommended that all of us go to the Mela. And then he said it'd be very auspicious to drink water from the Ganges. Mm. Well, he didn't tell me personally to do that, but he put the word out, you know. So there was a certain moment when the planets line up that's the most auspicious to go into the river. So I waded in along with a million other people. I'm standing there shoulder to shoulder with all the Indians and the sadhus and everything, and the water is going over my knees. So I reach down, grab a handful of this water, and I'm looking at it. And, you know, when you read Autobiography of a Yogi, the great test that the guru puts you through always is if 
they ask you to do something that contradicts common sense, you know, <laughs> as a test of your faith in the guru, you know. So I looked at this water in the palm of my hand and I said, well, this is my test to see if I have faith in the guru. So I drank, I probably drank one drop, which had probably, you know, half a million parasites in it. But the guru told me to do it. So no harm can come to me. Well, within 24 hours, I was sick as a dog. The interesting thing is right after that, someone told me you should go to Mount Shasta, like on the street. And three people told me that within a week, you know, to go to Mount Shasta. But anyway, for the next two years, I struggled with stomach problems, with health issues. And I think, why did my guru do this to me? You know, I believed in him and then he let this happen. Well, as a result of that, one thing I learned compassion for other people that were sick. You know, when you're young, you feel indestructible and you think, People are sick because they don't take care of themselves. That'll never happen to me. Then the other thing I learned was through the process of healing myself, I learned skills that enabled me to open a healing practice in Mount Shasta, where I did homeopathy and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it gave me a career in a sense. I realized I wasn't supposed to be a rocket scientist. Healing be more suitable. So that's how I earned my living for a while. So Actually, drinking from the Ganges turned out to be a blessing. So that's why I look at some of the things that are happening now that don't make sense in the world that are threatening. They have another side to them that in the long run, this is where our mastery is, learning to deal with these things. Yeah. A lot of people are publishing articles like that now, various spiritual teachers about how there is you know, as difficult as this is for the world, it's a necessary transformation period. And uh, we're going to have to go through some tough knocks. But but the changes that will come about as a result of this will in the long run be seen as very positive and necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a guy I run into every now and then at the post office. And uh, I've known him for 30 years. And uh, I had read some... This was like even last year, I said, uh, what do you think of this horrible thing that just happened, you know, that I just saw on the news and there are all kinds of theories, you know, conspiracies and all that stuff. And I said, what do you think of that? And he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, well, didn't you see it on the, it was, it's all over the internet. And he said, I don't have a computer. You're talking about the coronavirus now, right? No, this was last year. Oh, something else. I see. Some other disaster. He said, I don't have a computer. Mm -hmm. And all the stuff I was stressed about and everyone else was stressed about did not affect him at all. He was happy, enlightened, cheerful. He didn't know about all these disasters and conspiracies, you know. Of course, I don't want to say ignorance is bliss either. But, you know, you have your choice what you want to put your attention on, you know. Yeah. I just uh, read an article about a group of people who were on a 25-day rafting trip through the Grand Canyon, and they didn't have any mm-hmm. kind of connection with the outside world, no cell signal or anything like that. And they, you know, they came out after 25 days, and somebody met them at the dock, and, th- and it was like, holy crap, you should see what's going on in the world right now. They all said they wanted to yeah. go back into the Grand Canyon. Exactly. We'll come back to this topic because yeah. it's very timely, yeah. and, and I want to hear if, the, if Jane St. Germain or anybody has anything to say about it. But let's keep going with your story. Let's get back to that. Okay. 
So there's so many facets and threads to your story, so many adventures. I mean, there's a million different adventures in your books that are quite entertaining. Hey, I'll get you going on one. (laughs) Spinach Baba. Tell us about Spinach Baba. Oh, man. I was in Rishikesh, and I don't know. I understand Rishikesh now is not like in the old days. There are film festivals and cafes and all that kind of stuff. Back then, there were just ashrams and sadhus wandering. I don't think there were even any cafes. My first guru was Ramaruti Mishra, later became Swami Brahmananda. And that's another story. See, he, he was an MD. He went to Bangladesh to treat the cholera epidemic. He was there a couple months living in the villages, people dying of cholera. He never got sick because he was surrounded in light. But anyway, he told me, go see this Swami who was at the Shivananda Ashram in Rishikesh. So I thought for sure that's my guru. So I left New York, you know, went to India. I went to this ashram up above the Ganges, you know, in Rishikesh. And um, I said, I'm here to see, I think it was Swami Chidvalasananda, something like, I don't remember exactly his name. They said, oh, he... He's not here. And I said, well, I've come all the way from the U.S. to see him. They said, well, he's in New York giving lectures. (laughs) So I kind of realized he was not my guru. So I was kind of sad at that. I went down. I was sitting under, I think, a statue of Shiva in the middle of Rishikesh, wondering what to do with my life and where to go. And this young German couple came up to me and they said, our guru has sent us to get you, to bring you to him. And I said, well, I don't know. I'm not doing anything else. Sure. So they, we walked up along the Ganges out of town, and there was a little peninsula sticking out in the river. And um, they brought me out there. And this, there was a guy sitting there, you know, just wearing a loincloth, you know, just a piece of cloth around his waist didn't have anything, was sitting on a rock or maybe a piece of cloth, I don't know, but no possessions, no fire, absolutely nothing, nobody else there. This couple left, they took off. So I'm just sitting there with this guy. Oh, then I should say, I've been in India actually a while at this point. And um, you know what the Indian food is like, very highly cooked and very hot. Even if you say no spices, it would still burn you anyway. So I used to have a farm, and I, one of my favorite dishes, go out in the garden and pick fresh spinach, and I would just steam it lightly and put butter on it and have chapatis. And so, so anyway, I was craving that. I mean, every day, I, oh, if I could only have a bowl of that spinach, you know. So this guy looks at me, waves his hand like this. Suddenly, there's a metal bowl in his hand. Didn't you say he, this- he reached behind him, didn't he? Yeah, I reached behind him a bowl of this steamed spinach. Now, it had ghee on it, not butter. It had ghee, Same and idea. it had to- toasted chapatis, huh. also with ghee on it. It was all steaming hot, huh. you know, like fresh out of the oven. And he handed it to me, and I was waiting. I thought he was going to eat. He said, no, he wasn't. Gonna. He said, just go ahead, eat. I mean, he didn't talk. He just motioned to me to eat. Now, I looked around. There was no fire no utensils. There was no way he could have cooked that. And you didn't tell anybody you wanted steamed spinach or anything? It's just, no, no, no. He just knew that, that that was my fantasy was 
every day I thought about it. And he knew I wanted that. And he just handed it to me. So anyway, I ate this stuff like manna. Mm. And then I said, well, at last I found my guru, you know? <laughs> you know, so like, this is right out of autobiography of a yogi, right? So, so I'm waiting for the teaching. Like, give me my mantra, you know, or touch me on the third eye or reveal my past lives or something. Or you're, you know, what's supposed to say, ah, my son, at last you have arrived. I am your guru and everything will be bliss from now on, you know. But he didn't talk. He's what they call Moni Baba. You know, he was completely silent. So I sat there for a while waiting for something to happen. Then suddenly I felt incredibly sleepy and I just lay down and fell asleep. And I don't know what happened. I think I must have got some teaching then, but I couldn't remember but I woke up and the sun was going down. And I, you know, I might've been out a couple of hours, you know? And again, I, you know, I realized it was starting to get cold and I, I couldn't spend the night there. So, um, you know, I bowed to him and, you know, I was saying, come on, what, what's the teaching? Aren't, aren't you gonna give me any teachings or something like that? But there was just nothing. He just nodded to me. I said, well, you know, namaste. And then I left and uh, I never knew his name or anything. I understand later he got kind of a following and he did have a name, but I never knew what it was. So I just call him Spinach Baba. Yeah. Interesting that these characters have been around. So how long Mm. were you in India altogether? Let's just just cover cover your India phase a little bit here and some of the more interesting things that you feel like taking time to talk about. The first trip was about six months that mm-hmm. I wandered all over India. You know, Neem Karoli Baba would let you hang out for a while, maybe a month at the most. Then he'd say Jao, which meant, you know, get lost. Somebody know? actually sent in a question about him. Let me ask that right now. It's Rahul okay. Kulkarni from Bangalore. He said, I was inexpl- inexplicably drawn to Neem Karoli Baba a few years ago. Why is chanting the name of Ram so central to his teaching? What process does this chanting initiate and what is it all about? And what has been your experience with this, with the same? And maybe tell us what it was like to be with him. Oh boy. Well, that's a whole interview in itself. In but, a nutshell. <laughs> um, he was, first of all, a devotee of Hanuman. I mean, Nim Karoli Bob, I would say he's probably the devotee of Ram, but you see the story is Hanuman was the devotee of Ram. And he is the image of the ideal devotee. In fact, at the end, after all of his service, uh, you know, Rama said, I will give you liberation where you will become one with me, or, you know, you will be in cosmic consciousness. And Hanuman said, no, I don't want that. I want to stay in duality so I can love you. You know, I don't want to merge you. So it's the symbol kind of of devotion and bhakti, which was very much Neem Karoli Baba's path of bhakti. You know, it's very funny because when Ramdas went there, he was wanting some advanced kundalini yoga training. And so that was one of the first questions he asked Maharaji was, uh, how do I raise my kundalini? And Maharaji said, love people and feed them. In fact, Ramdas summed it up very beautifully. Someone asked him, I've been on a spiritual path for a long time, and sometimes I think I'm going crazy. How do I know if I'm progressing spiritually or I'm just going crazy? 
And he said, if you feel you're special and you're superior to other people, you're going the wrong way. If you feel more compassion and love for people, you're going the right way. You're making progress. And I think that's pretty much Maharaji's message. He told me my guru was Jesus Christ, actually. And, you know, I was sitting there for like a month in the back of the room. And, you know, all these young Western girls were sitting up front, massaging his feet and saying, oh, Maharaji. And he'd pat them on the head. And I said, I can't play that trip. That's not my scene, you know. So if he's my guru and he's going to teach me, he's going to have to say something. And so after about a month, you know, I'd be sitting in the back, leaning against the wall, trying to meditate and trying to tune into him. And at one point I thought, you know, I've been here a month. He doesn't even know I'm here. At that point, a banana dropped out of the air and landed in my lap. There was no one around that had fruit. It just, boom. He hadn't thrown it or something? No, no, everyone, yeah. there was a wall of people around, you know, they were all just doting on him. Yeah. And um, one time I saw him alone and I ran up to him. Normally there was Indian people around him sort of guarding him, you know. But I saw there was nobody there. So I, this was after months, you know, like he'd send everyone away. Then I'd come, everyone would come back. Then he'd send them away. So for six months, it was back and forth. So I saw him alone. At this point, I was feeling he's not my guru. So I ran up to him and I said, who's my guru? And he, he shook his fist at me. And I thought, oh, my gosh, the guy's threatening me with violence. And I don't know why everybody thought he was love and light. You know, he's shaking his fist and he shouted at me. He said, Jesus Christ. And I thought he was swearing at me. But he kept <laughs> saying, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I'd gone to the Presbyterian church as a kid, you know, and I thought, I didn't go to India to be told that I should be a Christian. Do you know what I mean? What he meant was get in touch with the inner Christ, you know? Then the funny thing is, he, he came to me the next day, although I didn't realize it was him. He walked up to me on the street and he said, what are you doing in India? You have Jesus Christ. But he didn't look like him. He looked like some other guy. So anyway... That was Then the last time I saw him was at the ashram in Vrindavan, and I saw him alone, and they had these two old rusty iron gates that you had to, you had to ring a bell when you wanted to go in, and these guys would come out and unlock the gates. So he came to see me. He sat down on his little cot there, and he served me tea. You know, in those days, they served the tea in these little clay cups. And when you're finished, you break it on the ground, you know, because they didn't have dishwashers and antiseptic stuff like that. So, but this cup had a hole in the bottom and it was leaking hot tea. And so, and he kept saying, drink your tea. Well, when I, first of all, if I picked it up, it would drip all over me. And it was even really too hot to drink. It was scalding. And he kept saying, drink your tea. And I thought, this guy is trying to kill me. So I balanced the cup on the ground like I held it with one finger so it wouldn't fall over. The bottom of it was round. So he said, yeah, so what are you doing here? Or what do you want? That was his thing. What do you want? And I said, well, I want to know where to go. Because I heard he told people, he told some people, go to Nanital. He told other people, go to Kenchi, go to, go to some other place in India. So every time I name a place, 
he'd say, yes, go there. So finally I said, well, you said three places. Which place should I go? I said, I just want to go where God wants me to go. And he said, don't you understand? God wants you to go where you want to go, which I thought was kind of interesting. And then I said, well, at this point, you know, it was close to my visa expiring and stuff. So I said, well, what, what should I do when I leave India? And he said, I don't care, you know, do whatever you want. And he told Krishnadas the same thing. He said, I don't care, do what you want. And then as Krishnadas was leaving, he said, I know, I'll sing to you. <laughs> you see, even Krishnadas, he, he got the guidance from within. So anyway. Well, this brings up an interesting topic. Um, guidance from within and also balancing individual volition with guidance from higher wisdom or higher sources. I know I've experienced this, and, I, and you alluded to it in your book also. There's a sort of transition one undergoes between mm. feeling like you are in charge and you are the master of your own life and you're calling the shots and all that, and then realizing there's something else that's trying to guide you and, and has been all mm-hmm. along, and kind of transitioning from relinquishing the reins, so to speak, and, and letting mm-hmm. Brahman be the charioteer or some higher knowledge be yeah. the charioteer. Your life is, oh. has been full of stories yeah. in which... Jesus. So there's one of them where you woke up in the morning, you thought, eh, I think I'll drive north. You start driving north, you end up in Canada from, from Mount Shasta. Yeah. And then next thing you know, yeah. you think, I think I'll go to Israel. And you end up flying to Tel Aviv and having all kinds yeah, of yeah. adventures there and going to Greece and finally coming back. <laughs> this is all having just gotten up one morning and, and yeah. feeling an impulse to take right. a little drive. And yet well, all these things seem so cosmically ordained yeah, and all right. kinds of circumstances work out just yeah. right. It's interesting. Well, this all started really, well, it started when I met St. Germain in Muir Woods, when okay. he materialized in a physical body in front of me. You know, I had heard his, in fact, I was a guest of the Theosophical Society in Adyar, India, where Krishnamurti had been trained and all that. You know, they had the largest metaphysical library in the world. I mm-hmm. went in there and said, I'm just going to stay here and read every single book here, you know. And after a while, I realized that was impossible. But I did look at Unveiled Mysteries by Godfrey Ray King. And it just didn't, they talked too much about jewels and abundance and all that kind of stuff, which I was kind of a sadhu at that point, you know, renunciation and everything. So, but I did hear about St. Germain and the Ascended Masters, but it didn't ring a bell. So when I got back to California, this is after six months well, then I'd gone back to India. Anyway, there were a couple of trips to India. There. So I was staying in Berkeley in uh, Jayutal's living room on his floor. And um, I woke up one morning and I was thinking, I had lived with a yogi in Himalayas for a while. I was getting ready to leave his body. So I thought that sounds like a good idea to leave my body because I just couldn't relate. You know, I grew up, in an abundant suburb of New York City, and I saw these rich people, and they weren't happy. And, you know, I really experienced true happiness in consciousness in India, and I said, I'm just going to go to a higher world and leave my body, but I should ask for guidance first. Well, I saw this ball of light come in the room, and I heard, go to Muir Woods, you know, which is, where is it, Marin County, I guess. So, so I went out there early one morning, and it was pouring rain, I was the only car in the parking lot, and I walked out into the woods, and I found a redwood tree that was hollow, 
there must have been a fire or something. So to get out of the rain, I got inside the trunk of this tree. And I was just sitting there doing Vipassana with my eyes open, just looking down at the forest floor, feeling the in-breath and the out-breath. And I said a prayer. I said, I, I want to leave my body, but I, I want to ask for permission first. But I didn't even really believe that anybody was up there watching out for me. You know, I had experienced God consciousness, but I didn't really think there were any divine beings that were cared about individuals. But I said, just to be on the safe side, I'm going to call on Jesus and St. Germain and Mother Mary. And I named every saint that I could think of. And suddenly there was a guy standing in front of me, looked like about my age. You know, I think I was 27 then or something like that. And he was just wearing jeans, looked like a regular guy, except he hadn't walked up. I would have heard him walking. The other thing is it was raining and he was dry. And he had a suede jacket my, on, which would have shown wetness yeah, if it were right, rained right, on. Right, right, exactly. And uh, he knew my name. He said, Peter, I've come to answer your prayer. And I thought, wow, this is the first time in my life a prayer has ever been answered. So he said, I will take you out of your body if you want and take you to the next level. But... I want to show you something first. And he touched me on the third eye and took me out of the physical body. So I'm in another body, looks just like my physical body. And I look back and there I am sitting in the tree, you know, still doing Vipassana, but I'm in this other body. So I'm in these two bodies simultaneously. He put his arm around me. The next thing I know, we're up above the earth somewhere. And there was this realm where beings exist as a ball of light. It's what the Tibetans call the rainbow body. It's a ball of like sun with beautiful rainbow colors around it. The word he used was, he said, this is the permanent self of these beings. These are, you know, formerly human beings, but they are existing now in the permanent, in the body of the permanent self. This is contrary to what a lot of Buddhists will tell you that there's no self. It just means the human self dies, but there is a permanent Buddha nature, Christ self, whatever you want to call it, that they call the monad, or actually in India, the Atman, that is permanent and is eternal. And the feeling of bliss was overwhelming. And I said, this is it. This is where I want to be. And then I heard this crying coming from someplace and I thought, where is that annoying sound coming from? And I looked down and I saw the earth below me as a blue ball. And I just heard the suffering. And he said, this is what the masters hear all the time, the suffering of humanity, 24-7. You can imagine, I mean, with all the stuff going on in the world, people crying to God for help and the suffering is just, it was overwhelming. There was no doubt in my mind that I wanted to go back. And my heart just went out. I said, I want to go back and help. And he said, you made the right choice. He said, now we'll be working closely together. So the next thing I know, I'm back in the tree in Muir Woods. And here's this hiker in front of me. So I realize now this is not some ordinary guy, you know. So he said, now I will show you who I really am. It was like from Star Wars, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, 
he changed in front of me into this being wearing a white robe. And then that being just faded out, disappeared, and I was left alone. Oh, the last thing he said was, go to Mount Shasta. The first person you meet there will tell you what to do next. Well, I felt like I'd been hit by lightning. I was so energized. I went out to my car. There was still no other cars in the parking lot. I drove straight to Mount Shasta. I went to a breakfast place that was on Mount Shasta Boulevard, and a guy came up to me. You know, Mount Shasta was a real kind of redneck town. And, and um, anyway, this guy came up to me who owned the health food store. He said, hi, uh, you're supposed to see this lady by the name of Pearl. And I said, I don't know who she is, but I was told to do whatever the first person told me to do. So I went to see Pearl and uh, she said, come right up. And she said, I've been expecting you. And I said, what do you mean expecting me? She said, the Master St. Germain came to me this morning and said he was sending someone to see me. And so I knew that you were going to show up. So I told her what happened to me in Muir Woods and all that. But anyway, so she said, St. Germain is, is here and he's working with you and he's showing you, he's giving you guidance. And I said, but I don't, I don't hear anything. I said, would you channel a message to me? And she said, I don't channel. The masters won't let me do that. And I said, why not? She said, well, you, you won't become a master that way. You have to learn to get it within. Now, this is what this thing about learning to trust the feeling in your heart to get the guidance that way. And so I was kind of frustrated. But over a period of months, I learned to tune in. She said, you people that have been to India or have learned to meditate have a blessing over like the people that were in the St. Germain Foundation that never learned to meditate. They were all just sitting there all the time listening to messages, you know, but they didn't know how to take it within. So she said, your I am presence will guide you from within yourself, you know? And she said, it will come as a feeling. Most of the time it won't come as a voice, although it can come as a voice. But she said, if I give you a message, that will weaken you. You'll never learn to get it yourself. You have to learn. And she said, even things like tarot or signs and omens, you know, casting rune stones, these can all be interpreted many different ways. She said, the best way to get guidance is just to spontaneously do the right thing. Just be in the moment, you know, Buddha at the gas pump, just be in your Buddha nature and do what's in your heart. And that is God speaking to you. Well, a couple of questions for you. Let's cover a foundational thing, which is that many people listening might not take it for granted that there Mm -hmm. are sort of ascended beings or ascended masters that that actually are real and that are looking over the earth and interceding from time to time Mm -hmm. in human affairs, helping to guide human affairs. Mm -hmm. So let's kind of cover a little bit of Ascended Masters 101 here. And um, for the sake of those to whom that notion may be somewhat alien, and also, of course, many people listening will be comfortable with that idea, elaborate a bit on on what's going on. I mean, where are these beings? What are they? How many of them are there? Do they just um, Mm -hmm. have jurisdiction over this planet? Or do they have wider jurisdictions over other Mm. worlds and so on? Tell us a bit. Well, you know, there are many planes of existence. I like to think of them as frequencies. People use the term dimensions, but I think that's the wrong term. It's more like density. Like right now, 
on the internet, I could have a dozen different websites up, sure. you know, in small screens there. So there are many of these densities or frequencies going simultaneously, but well, we only well, see right the one now we're you focused. and I are talking, yeah. but there are right. radio signals and cell phone signals and all kinds of different frequencies going through our bodies, short wave frequencies. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's all the electromagnetic field. But what we're saying here is that, you know, there are grosser and subtler, if we want to use those yeah. terms. Yeah. ranges of existence, and um, mm -hmm. we don't necessarily see them all, although mm -hmm. many can be seen if, if, or, or tuned into uh, mm -hmm. if one has mm -hmm. cultures the ability mm -hmm. to do so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, exactly. So. And so, of course, the religions talk about heavenly worlds and hell worlds and all that stuff. So it's certainly mm -hmm. something that people have been talking about for a long time. Yeah. Still, sure. some, many people are skeptical that such things exist. Which is okay, and we're not mm. going to convince them here. You and I obviously are yeah. convinced. But I don't know, it's good to just not take it for granted necessarily. Yeah. You know, until you actually experience it, maybe it's, it's a little hard to believe, but all the, all the world literature really, not, I mean, all the classic paths from Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism talk about being able to exist on other frequencies, other dimensions, that people can be multiple places simultaneously. And um, there's times that I've experienced being invisible. You know, it's just like I found if I had been meditating and went for a walk, there was a time when I did a 40-day retreat. I did leave the retreat once a week to buy groceries. And I wouldn't talk to him. I'd just go, you know, 15 minutes I'd be there. And I found out, I'd be going down the aisle, people would push their shopping carts right into me. Because <laughs> they wouldn't see you. They wouldn't see me. Uh -huh. And then I discovered I should not, you know, after a week's meditation, I should go for a walk first, then go shopping. You know, I've had that experience. And I've also had experience where I went into a restaurant and people, the waitress just didn't see me. You know, I was right in front of her. So... You know, you can raise or lower your frequency. And so if you permanently go into higher frequency, that would be called ascension. You know, and it says Jesus, you know, in the Bible, ascended to a higher higher realm. One uh, good bit of evidence these days, of yeah. course, with various forms of um, modern medicine, mm -hmm. there have been a lot more people having near-death experiences that, than there mm -hmm. used to be. People used to just die, but mm -hmm. now they, they get their heart going again and they bring them back. Mm -hmm. And a large percentage of people... Um, Mm -hmm. have near-death experiences, and a number of researchers like Pim mm -hmm. von Lommel and others have mm -hmm. documented their experiences, but over mm -hmm. and over again, and there's a whole category of those people on BatGap, over and over again, people say, yeah, I, mm -hmm. yeah, I went outside my body, I saw the doctors mm -hmm. operating on me from about six feet above mm -hmm. them or something, I saw a red sneaker on the hospital balcony, and sure enough, they go and check, and the, there was a sneaker out there, which the person couldn't have seen in any other yeah, right, right, means. Right. And so there's there's some pretty significant evidence. That's kind of what I was alluding to earlier when I talked about mm -hmm. materialist scientists resisting such evidence, mm -hmm. but it keeps mounting. There's more and more of this stuff, and it's hard to explain away if we just consider the brain to be the creator of consciousness, and when the brain dies, consciousness disappears. <laughs> Well, you know, as you meditate, as you've, you've experienced, 
consciousness is everywhere and is eternal, you know, and I don't know whether scientists would call that the quantum field. I think it's deeper than the quantum field, more fundamental. But it's certainly Mm -hmm. not an unusual idea. I mean, we've alluded to Mm -hmm. radio. Everyone has listened to a radio and the radio is just a localized object, but it Mm -hmm. picks up on a ubiquitous field and and Mm -hmm. can interpret the fluctuations in that field into Mm -hmm. music or speech or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we are localized objects, you could say, and yet Mm -hmm. we are grounded in a ubiquitous field, consciousness, and we reflect that or express it to whatever degree. Well, it's like saying, where where is the internet? It's everywhere. If you're in a Wi-Fi area, do you know? Or even if you live in a city with all the Wi-Fi, you know, you're in the internet. And what if you dropped your computer and it died? You know, well, the computer died, but the internet goes on, you know? And your your website that you put up, that's going to go on after the death of your computer. Well, a body's like a computer. So when this vehicle dies when this computer ceases to function my energy patterns will consciousness will go on in many different levels and obviously if it changes your whole perspective if if you understand this because if if it's not that way Mm -hmm. then what is life all about you hang around for 70 or 80 years you die you're gone but with this perspective it's like all right i just did the first grade now i'm going to do the second grade then i'll do the third Mm -hmm. grade each life brings new learning opportunities and we progress along. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the Buddhist throw was stressing impermanence. That's the first of the four noble truths. Everything's impermanent and phases out of existence and ceases to exist. Well, you know, there's a corollary to that, that there is a permanent state. The lamas always cringe when I say that, but I said, look, you're praying to Buddha. He must exist. Or you're praying to Padmasambhava. Yeah, where are they? Where are they? So they're Buddhas, they're fully enlightened beings, but they still exist in some realm. I don't know how long Padmasambhava or St. Germain or some of these others are supposed to have existed, perhaps for millions of years, I don't know. Are you of the opinion that, or have you learned through everything you've gone through, that souls basically have an eternal existence and just keep ascending to higher and higher levels? Or do they eventually sort of merge into the absolute or into the ocean and cease to exist in, with any semblance of individuality? Mm. Well, there's what we call the soul, which the I am people call the higher mental body, or maybe your Christ self, which is the intermediary self between the human and what I call the I am presence or the Atman. And that actually is what we're developing here. Like we're kind of the laboratory for the Christ self. So in order for that laboratory to be effective, we have to have good and evil, right and wrong, hot and cold, pleasure and pain. And I think that's the metaphor of the Garden of Eden. Don't eat of that apple. Well, we were supposed to eat that apple. You know, what kind of a parent would bake cookies and say, these are the best cookies I've ever made, but I'm going out for a while. Don't touch them. <laughs> yeah. So you can't imagine that God would be that stupid to say, this is the best fruit in the whole garden. By now I'm going, don't eat it. Well, they were supposed, that, was, that apple was the knowledge of good and evil. 
Yeah. In other so words, relative was, creation has a purpose. It's not some kind of yeah. accident. It's not it's yeah. not a mistake. It's not a fall from an ideal condition. Mm. It's actually an mm. evolutionary mechanism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have to confront these things, life and death, good and evil. So the times we live in are probably the ideal. Where we're alive now is the ideal time to become a master Rather than blaming people and being a victim, it's time to take responsibility for oneself. I am here right now as a result of my previous choices I've made, not only this life, but past lives. I'm not like mold that just grew under a rock. I chose to incarnate, to have these parents and to have these circumstances in my life and to be alive in the year 2020 to experience exactly what's going on. Now, what am I going to do with that experience? Am I going to play the victim or am I going to become a master? You know, this is the second day of spring. So why don't we spring ahead rather than fall behind into old habits and conditioning and say, poor me, you know, or, you know, what was us or whatever. It took you a while to learn that, didn't it? Because you kept saying throughout your book, I want to ascend now. I think I'll climb this mountain and fast and maybe I'll ascend. And then you kept getting smacked down again. (laughs) That happened to me. I was back in New York. I was uh on retreat for almost three years around 2014, 15, 16, somewhere in there. Anyway, so toward the end, I thought, well, time to ascend. And I was working on ascending. It was 10 o'clock at night, pitch dark. My cabin got hit by a bolt of lightning. Literally, this is not a dream. The whole thing lit up. I could look out the window as bright as day. I could see the field and the trees and everything. It melted the wires in the walls. Mm. And I passed out and I woke up in the morning and I thought, God, I thought I ascended. What happened? But to me, that was God showing me it's not time to ascend. You keep asking for this. Go back to Mount Shasta. You got work. You know, there's people need to talk to you there. So, yeah. The reason we know that we're supposed mm-hmm. to be here is that we're here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Right. If, if yeah. we weren't supposed to, we wouldn't be. <clears throat> well, this is why I like. The title, Buddha at the Gas Pump, you know, like there are a lot of spiritual paths that lead to what they call, you know, the Advaita paradise of non-being or no self, you know, but that's not really mastery. It's a, a part of the path. You can experience no self. You can go into that state, but there still is a self somewhere, but it's just free of the ego, you know, clinging, free of the ego clinging, you know. So the whole idea of being at the gas pump is you are in a body, you have a vehicle that needs gas. How are you going to pay for the gas? Well, I have to get a job and so on. Oh, job. That means I have to relate to other people. (laughs) People. You know, a lot of these yogis could not hold a job. You know, could Ramakrishna hold a job? I don't think so. Wasn't yeah, his I conditioning? Love him and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, wasn't what he was here for? Right. It wasn't you know? his dharma. So, but yeah, actually, a lot of the so. yogis who do end up coming to the West um, get into trouble mm. because it's the culture is <laughs> yeah. they're so unaccustomed to the culture and how to function in it. You know that, yeah. that they end up yeah. screwing up in various ways. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I was uh, a couple months ago getting gas mm-hmm. in my car, and uh, a guy came up to me. Now I've had a few experiences where Saint Germain actually walked up to me as a young guy, you know, 
he has an incredible sense of humor. He's a real joker and he can do all kinds of things, you know, and you wouldn't know at the time that it's him. And he could appear in any form, male, female, even as a dog or whatever. But so this young guy comes up to me and says, hey, can you spare some change? Well, you know, there's a lot of homeless people around town. And if I was giving out change to all of them, that's all I'd be doing all day and I, I would be broke. So in general, I say no. But again, tuning in, getting guidance, feeling what is right. I am the presence. That's why I say I am the presence of God revealing to me if I should give this person some money. And I heard yes. So I gave him a $5 bill and he was so grateful. He got out his phone. He texted his wife and he said, now we can eat today. And he said, thank you so much. He was so grateful. He just lit up his face. He was giving off something. Now, I don't know who that guy was. Maybe it was just who he appeared to be, but I knew I did the right thing. And then I, I think you'd already contacted me about doing this show. And I thought, wow, there's the compassion of the Buddha literally at the gas pump. You don't learn that in Advaita. Advaita, there's nobody else exists. Somebody hungry, that's an illusion. Yeah. Although some of the great Advaita masters were also strong advocates of being compassionate mm-hmm. and helping and others sure. and all. But it's sometimes taken in that lopsided way where the, the relative world is just sort of dismissed as illusory and doesn't matter what happens in it and so on. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm talking about some of the Western practitioners of it who kind of get the one aspect of it, like there's no self and nobody else. It's all me, right, which right. kind of becomes an ego trip. You know? <laughs> yeah, it can. So I want to talk more with you about St. Germain since he's been so central, uh, central to your life. And I, yeah. just as you were speaking there, I, I could tick off about half a dozen instances in my mind where you had run into him in a, actually a manifest form. There was Muir Woods, there was Paris, there was Israel, there was hmm. a whole bunch of different things have happened. And he seems to be your guy. Yeah, um, oh yeah. And he actually was an historical character, historical person yeah. back in the 1800s, right? right? Uh, or so the right. story goes. Yeah. Now, see, the problem is there were about, Rudolf Steiner talked about this, there, there were probably about a dozen people over a course of 200 years that had the name St. Germain. It was just a common name? Yeah. Like, I, I went to high school with someone whose last name was St. Germain, and in the U.S. Congress, there was someone whose name was St. Germain. He was head of the banking Mm-hmm. Banking Oversight Committee. Can, His name was Saint Ferdinand Saint. So it's not that unusual a name. Yeah, now, like Saint Clair or Saint such yeah. and such. Some people have that in Saint, their names. Saint John, Saint right. John, Jack Saint John, mm-hmm. or whatever. It's it's a French name. And there was a French general whose name was Saint Germain. You know, in French history, you can look it up. There was also a priest or somebody in the Catholic Church in France whose name was Saint Germain. You know, right. And the Boulevard Saint-Germain, you know, in Paris, was named after one of those historical characters. Mm -hmm. It was not named after the Ascended Master Saint-Germain. But this Ascended Master Um, himself was not always Ascended. He was was an earthly being and and he was very influential. In fact, I read how he seemed, you said that he was Sir Francis Bacon at one point Mm -hmm. and wrote the plays of Shakespeare, which is an interesting theory, (laughs) and um, that he also was very influential in in the creation of the United States. 
this is the kind of stuff yeah. that I'm open to yeah. take with a grain of salt, but it's interesting to consider. Not that By my the way, opinion matters. I met about, let's see, sometime last year. You know, Sean Stone, he does interviews also. Doesn't ring He's bell. Oliver Stone's son, the movie, the movie director. No, Sean Stone, he has an interview program. Anyway, he came up here with a guy who was actually the genetic descendant of Saint Germain, uh-huh. or one of the Saint Germains, who was, again, there's lots of stories. A lot of people claim to, so there was someone who was the illegitimate son of the, one of the Medicis. And um, he took the name Saint Germain, which his father did not want him claiming to be his son, you know, because he didn't want it known he had an illegitimate child. So he took the name Saint Germain. He used Sanctus Germanus. So there are lots of stories, different beings that use that name. Some of them were scoundrels. The story is, and what the Saint Germain I know has given me reason to believe his last physical embodiment was as Sir Francis Bacon, who wrote the Shakespeare plays, or most of them, possibly in collaboration with other people. But if you read the life of Francis Bacon, a phenomenal being, you know, a genius, really. So then about, I think, 50 years after his death, now that people say, well, he never died. He went to the Himalayas. That stuff is theory, is not substantiated. So a being starts appearing in Europe, the courts of Europe, under different names. One of them was Sanctus Germanus or Saint Germain. He used different names in different places, you know, but the, the core of it was that he gave the name Saint Germain. Fortunately, there were women who kept diaries in those days in the different courts of Europe. And one of them in the court in Russia and the court in France, there's a diary. These books are in the uh, British Museum. And there's a woman, Isabel Cooper Oakley, who wrote a book, Le Comte de Saint-Germain. It's in English, The Count of Saint-Germain, where she researched, she went to the library and actually read these diaries. You know, these are not channelings or somebody's theory. And there'll be a diary entry on one day where he's talking to this woman in Paris. And then there's a woman in Russia on the same day saying he talked to her on that day, that he just materialized or something. So there was someone for a period of about 150 years in Europe that kept appearing and guiding people. So we, we presume that it was the same person doing this for yeah. 150 years. Now, there years. are other stories... Uh, that Manly P. Hall talks about. I used to believe those stories that Manly Hall wrote implicitly. I've had some reason to believe now some of those may not have been totally accurate. Well, even Madame Blavatsky, you know, who was really not the type to be hiking all over the Himalayas, claimed to do that kind of thing. (laughs) And, you know, if you look at her, what her body looked like, the imagination is a wonderful thing. Yeah, you know, I have... Uh, two books by Blavatsky. One is her diaries and her letters, not di- their letters that she wrote or journal entries. And it's facts, It's a facsimile, like they're photographs of her journal. So you can look at the handwriting. Then I have another book, the Mahatma letters, which are supposedly letters precipitated out of the air by different masters. The handwriting is the same in both of them. So that 
introduced a little bit of doubt, but for sure Blavatsky was the one who got the new age going, like what's called the externalization of the hierarchy. Before, occult means hidden. So all this stuff we're talking about was hidden. You could only talk about it as an initiate or member of a secret order. She started to talk about these things and make them known. So regardless of any flaws that she may have had, which even the masters acknowledged that she had, she was an amazing being that made the existence of the masters known. So, and she talked about St. Germain and things like that. Well, that's so. an interesting point because it's hard to find anybody who isn't flawless. You know, even yeah. the, the, great, yeah. the great teachers and, and all, you, yeah, you, you sure. learn about their private lives and it's like, mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he too was a work in progress. So a couple of questions have come in. Let's ask these. We were talking a bit ago about, you know, there being a self or no self and so on. Someone named, I think, Uplift from Sacramento asks, I've experienced the bliss of peace, clarity, calmness, and patience. I believe I was experiencing the no self. Is that the space from where I can cultivate things I want to manifest in the physical world? Who is this I that wants to manifest things from the no self, I'm wondering? But anyway. After I came to Mount Shasta, I saw that you, I could, you know, like through tuning in to whatever you want to call it, the inner presence or the higher self, I could make stuff happen. You can call it the law of manifestation or what do they call it? Now, you know, it's in that movie, The Secret. Right. You, you've made tons of stuff happen. I mean, the, the stories are quite yeah. remarkable. Yeah. But, you know, just for your willpower, it's like the law of magnetism. You magnetize things to yourself. You can even call it charisma or something. But Tony Robbins is talking about, you know, really put out there, you want a new car and boom, you magnet. Anyway, so I experienced, I could create these things, but then I found out later, these things weren't really good for me. Right. You know, what if you got everything you desired and then you go, oh my gosh, what do I do with this crap? You know, now it's, you know, anyway, uh, I've got to pay taxes on it and I, you know, people trying to steal it and whatever, you know, like. I got this new car and then someone opened their door into it. And now it's dented. And, you know, anyway, so at some point I said, thy will, not my will be done. Mm-hmm. That's good. You know, so that's, that would sum it up. So I sat down, this is when this experience started where I went to Canada and I didn't know where I was going. I sat down at a table in the corner of the health food store and I said, I am not going to leave this table until God tells me what to do. I don't care if I have to sit here for a week, you know. Well, I was pretty sure, you know, Jesus was not going to walk in the door and tell me, Peter, here's what I want you to do. So, you know, I, I so I, but I paid attention. I mean, I might have sat there two hours and I was, I didn't have my eyes closed, but I was meditating. I had my attention inside. So after a couple hours, some people came in and they talked about this Renaissance fair that was happening in Ashland. Now, Ashland's about an hour and a half drive north. As soon as I heard this Renaissance fair, something kind of went like that. I felt a rush of energy inside of me, like it was the pull to go to that. So from having studied with Pearl, I recognized there was a feeling in my heart that suddenly something lit up. I felt good. So I kept asking, I am the presence showing me where to go, what to do. Then a few minutes later, someone came in with a sleeping bag. We had a free box in the entrance of the health food store where you could leave stuff you wanted to give away. 
someone came in with a sleeping bag and told me, by the way, I just left a sleeping bag there. Do you need a sleeping bag? Well, I thought that's another sign. I had a van and, you know, I could sleep in the back of my van with a sleeping. So I went out, I got the sleeping bag and I said, that seems to be my sign that I should go to Ashland. So I drive up to Ashland and I'm at a stoplight in the middle of town. And there's a guy crossing the street in front of me wearing a white turban, all in white, wearing a white turban. Well, this is the days of, uh, what is it, Yogi Bhajan Bhajan, and all that. So this guy stops. He's in the crosswalk, comes up to my car. My window is open. He says, I don't know why I'm telling you this. It's crazy. I've never done this before. But if you need a place to spend the night, you can stay at my place. You must have looked like a far-out character. He probably thought you were a kindred soul, right? Well, in those days, I think I was wearing all white. I just come from India, you know, and I was still wearing my pajamas. And your long hair. And I had long hair and probably a Rudraksha Mala and all that stuff. Right, so you didn't look like a hell's angel or something. So he probably thought, okay, this guy's good. (laughs) (laughs) So, but still, it's kind of rare for someone to do that. Yeah, yeah. You know? So he gave me his address, and I went to this Renaissance fair. Well, nothing was really happening there that resonated. So I went to this guy's house, and he and his wife, like, they were just sitting down to dinner. I spent the night there. I had my sleeping bag that I'd just gotten. I slept on their sofa in the sleeping bag. And um, it was like he was a long-lost brother. You know, there was a beautiful spiritual connection that happened. But that night, I had a dream where I was talking to this woman I had met in Mount Shasta who lived up by Mount Hood. And she was saying, I need help. Can you please come see me? But I didn't have her address. You know, I'd been praying for guidance. Before I went to sleep at night, I said, I call on God, show me the next step. I said, I am the presence revealing to me where to go tomorrow. So this dream happened. So I said, well, okay, I'll drive up to Mount Hood. But then I don't know where this woman lives. So I'm driving down a road, the road that goes to Mount Hood. And there's a dirt road that comes out of, you know, a side road that comes out to the main road. And I just, a car came out that dirt road and I felt stop, turn into that road. Again, this is all feeling, no voice or anything. I turned into that road and there's the woman that came to me in the dream. She said, thank God I've been praying that you would show up. And this is not someone you had ever met before. Well, I met her in Mount Shasta. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go uh, ahead. Like months before. Right. You know, we had met, but I'd not been in contact with her. And, you know, what is the chance of driving to Mount Hood and meeting the person you had a dream about? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a big area. So, yeah. So she invited me to spend the night with her and her kids. I stayed there a few days and she needed some help with some stuff happening you know, where I helped her meditate and tune in to what the plan was. Anyway, helped her straighten out. So this whole trip, I was gone for two weeks on this trip where I had no idea, like, you know, it would have been great if, if St. Germain had handed me an itinerary. <laughs> Here's where you're, but I couldn't have followed it because there was some split second timing. Like if I had been a little sooner or a little later, I would have missed this woman. It all came from being completely in the now. You know, like Ramdas, be here now. I was gone for two weeks, yeah. and it was like this the whole way up to Canada. Then I heard, turn around, come back. 
And then on my way back, I'd always wanted to visit Ken Kesey, who the Merry Pranksters the and all Kool-Aid that. Electric Kool-Aid acid test, right? Yeah, right. So he was one of the characters that, you know, I'd known people connected with him and uh, so on. And I'd stayed at Steve Gaskin's farm and, you know, it was this that whole 60s crowd. But I went against the guidance. My mind came in. See, my personal ego mind said, I want to visit him. But I had went past the freeway exit. I think it was Springfield, Oregon. I went past the exit. And that should have been my guidance. But my mind came in and the ego. So I stopped on the freeway, made a U-turn across the median, which is illegal, you know. I could see a mile in either direction. There were no cars, no police cars, nothing. No sooner had I made this U-turn than there's a police car right behind me with the lights flashing, you know, highway patrol. I thought, this has to be St. Germain. No car could appear that fast. So the guy pulls me over, and he knows my name. He said, Peter, you did something very dangerous. Even before you showed him your license, your license, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I looked at, he had a name tag. And it said something like Girardi or something. I thought, well, a master wouldn't lie. If he was St. Germain, it would say St. Germain. Well, I found out that's not necessarily true. He was just playing a role. So he smiled. He was very, he said, I'm not going to, well, no, he did give me a ticket, actually. And he said, what you did was very dangerous. Well, what he meant was, see, what I had been thinking was, now that I'm connected with the masters, I don't need to obey the human laws. That's what was dangerous. So he was trying to tell me, don't think like that. It wasn't the fact that I made a U-turn because what I, it was safe. There were no cars coming. Anyway, I went to visit Ken Kesey and hung out there for a while, and nothing really happened there. And then I realized the whole thing was just an ego trip. I should have just kept going on the freeway. But for two weeks, I was gone on this trip. And the lesson for me was... Just stay tuned in with the heart and the guidance will be there in the moment as long as that feeling is there, the feeling of rightness. And if I'm ever in a situation where I don't know what to do next, if I'm driving, I'll just pull off to the side of the road. If I'm walking down the street, suddenly I just feel stopped. And I think, why am I stopping here in the middle of the sidewalk? Then someone comes out of the building and says, oh, Peter, I've been looking for you. Nice. It's interesting to consider how those things are orchestrated, mm-hmm. how they're yeah. organized. I don't know, you, maybe you have a comment on it. I don't know whether it's guardian angels or higher mm-hmm. beings that are sort of shuffling us around like chess pieces, or whether it's just all-pervading intelligence. And if we're in tune with that all-pervading intelligence and the way it flows, then, you know, without mm-hmm. any individual entity trying to mm-hmm. orchestrate our mm-hmm. destiny, we just are in the right place at the right time, synchronis- syn- synchronistically. Well, once I had this experience with St. Germain, I realized he wanted me to do something. You know, what he had said, actually, because you chose to stay on the earth, we'll be working together. And he introduced me to some of these other masters. So I realized there is, well, I call it the Council of Light. I don't call it the Great White Brotherhood because there are female masters there also. So there is a council of ascended beings who are, you know, liberated. They, they don't have any more earthly karma, but they've had this experience also. They don't want to leave. They want to stay here and help, but they do it from that higher realm. So the more 
you're in tune with your own higher self, you're also in tune with them. You're sort of automatically working with them. But the more you try to align yourself with them, they can work with you and use you for things. You know, like I ended up putting on an art show on Rodeo Drive with Shirley MacLaine, completely out of the blue. I didn't have her phone number. It's just through following that guidance of being at the right place at the right time, somebody phones me and says, would you help out put on this art show? And, you know, there I'm down there at the Dianson Gallery on Rodeo Drive with Shirley MacLaine and Jaja Gabor and Linda Carter, all these famous... Bella Abzug, you mentioned. Bella Abzug, yeah. So what I was doing there is not that I needed to meet those people. I called forth the Ascended Masters to use this as a focus of light. So something else was happening on another plane, you know. Plus, there was something happened with Shirley, a real, almost like happened with Ananda May Mai. There was some light flew back and forth that could only have happened if I'd been there in person. We've already covered this. Mm. But let's, let's say it one more mm. time. How do you distinguish between mm. these sort of intuitive impulses that are actually worth listening to or obeying and personal mm. whims? that could lead you off in who knows what kind of crazy directions. Because many people are listening to this, they think, well, this sounds good. So how do we save them from just going off on crazy tangents? Well, you test it. How do you test it? Well, okay. Dear God, take this desire out of me if it's a personal whim, you know? And if I meant to do it, strengthen the desire, you know? Like, there used to be this vegetarian restaurant in town called Friends of the Mountain that this woman, Kathy, ran, who actually now lives down the street from me, but um, they had this great cheesecake. I generally don't like cheesecake. But I love this cheesecake. Was some, yeah, and it had some fruit blended in. It was, so it was very light. It wasn't heavy. So I started feeling like I should really overcome my desire for this, you know, that maybe it wasn't good for me to eat so much. So I said, dear God, please take the desire for the cheesecake out of me, you know? And for about a week, it was okay. You know, I didn't desire it. Then one night I was, I was, I'd been, I was really tired. I'd done, I had a hard day and I was going to bed early, like eight o'clock. I was just going to get in my pajamas and go to bed. You know, I heard inside, it was actual voice. that said, go to Friends of the Mountain restaurant and have a piece of cheesecake. <laughs> and I went, oh, no, I'm trying to get rid of that desire. You know, that's like you say, that's a whim, you know, or a craving. I kept what they call decreeing, take that desire out of me, you know, take it out. of me. Well, the more I did that, the stronger it got. Then I said, well, what I will do, I'll go to the restaurant, but I won't go in. So I got dressed. I drove, I parked outside and I heard... Peter, I mean, this was now St. Germain, but I still wasn't totally, is it St. Germain, my hair self, or is it my mind speaking, you know? But again, the energy, I tuned into the energy. said, Peter, I said, have some cheesecake. So again, I said, I'll just go and have some tea. I won't have cheesecake. So I went in, they were just getting ready to close, you know? I just ordered some tea. I was sitting in the corner and... There was only one other table in there. There was a couple sitting in the corner. Then I heard, again, very strong, I said, have some cheesecake. So (laughs) I got up, 
they had a case in the counter with all the desserts in the refrigerated case. So just as I got up, the guy from this other table got up and he went to the counter and he said, we both got there at the same time. He said, can you recommend a dessert? And I said, the cheesecake. And he said, would you let me buy it for you? I'd like you to join my wife and me over at the table. So I said, great. So I sat down with them. Turns out they were from France. They were members of the St. Germain Foundation. And he said, the reason I invited you for cheesecake is my wife saw St. Germain standing behind you. So we wanted to find out who you were. So I talked to them about how I'd been learning from Pearl to find the master inside, you know, that not to talk to the I am presence up there, but to contact it inside, you know. So we had a great talk. They invited me to visit them in France, said, be our guest in France as long as you want. You know, we'll send you a ticket, all that stuff. So this was a connection that was meant to be. It's not that St. Germain wanted me to have cheesecake. It's he wanted me to meet these people. The cheesecake was the bait to get me there. So after that, my desire for cheesecake was gone. I never desired cheesecake after that. So again... Sometimes, so that I was testing it, you know, like you test, you test it. Am I supposed to do this or not? And I, I mean, I get it all the time, you know, should I do this or not? I gave up drinking coffee. I didn't have coffee for 20 years. One day I just, I felt St. Germain saying, Peter, it'd be good for you, you know, every now and then have a little coffee. Again, I tested it and it seemed like work out okay, but. Anyway, we get, I get this all the time. Is that a whim or is that something I should really do? So I test it. Here's where it comes. I go to the health food store. You know, there's rows and rows of food. I say, I am in the presence buying what I am meant to have, and I am staying away from what I'm not meant to have. So I'm walking down the aisle, almost like with my hand up, and suddenly my hand wants to go out. Oh, what's that? That's seaweed. My body wants seaweed, you know, so I put it in the cart, you know, <laughs> but then maybe my hand goes out to the ice cream and it goes, uh-uh, don't, don't get that, you know? Yeah, interesting. So again, even sometimes the health food store is right next to the post office. I don't need anything at the health food store. I'm going to pick up my mail and I, I have this feeling, go into the health food store and I, I don't need anything. Why go in there? And I go in, someone comes up to me, says, I saw one of your videos and i'm so glad to run into you well i wouldn't have met them if i hadn't followed the guidance you know the inner guidance so that guidance is very real it's for everybody i mean everyone gets it in some way or another it's just that that strong feeling yeah you know i knew a guy that used to read tarot cards in new york city he used to read like he read for yoko ono and you know a lot of famous people she wanted to know about John's career, you know, and he told her, I don't see him having a good ending. I see him lying in a pool of blood. And I said, well, that's great. What good did that do? Did that help John? Did that help her? No, it just put fear into her. You know I suppose I mean? it could have helped. She could have warned him or well, he could have taken seriously. What are you going to do? Stay yeah, at home? Do? I yeah, mean, I mean, you know? anything could happen anytime. Sure. 
This video will probably be on YouTube for many years, probably be on YouTube longer than we're on the planet. But at the moment, might even be on other planets. Right? Yeah, you, know, you never know when uh, they on Alpha Centauri, your your show is a hit there. You expand know? the internet a little bit. Well, the trouble is the speed of light has uh, limitations. Okay. Uh, take it four years to get to Alpha Centauri because it's four light years away. Right now, the world is in the midst of a pandemic. It's right. it's really a big deal. Nothing like this on this scale has happened since 1918 where the Spanish flu epidemic, which was huge, which killed hundreds of millions of people. So people are freaked out. And um, if people are watching this now, they'll know what I'm talking about. If people are watching it 20 years from now, they'll probably know what I'm talking about because this will go into the history books. So we should talk mm-hmm. a bit about it a little bit. And a question came in that will get us started from Ivana from Zagreb, Croatia. She says, I understand the current pandemic crisis is here to transform the society. That's her understanding. However... Does it have a specific message for humanity? Has St. Germain said anything about it? How mm-hmm. should we pray or meditate when sorrow is overwhelming? It's a great question, and that's a question everybody is asking. St. Germain has not given me verbally you know, a message on it, but he's really opened my eyes up to, uh, you know, without getting into all the theories of the origin and of, of it and everything, First of all, about five years ago, I looked at the planetary configuration that's happening right now. From an astrological point of view? Yeah, with Saturn, Pluto, Jupiter, Mars all lined up. So I said, from the time, the beginning of March to the end of March, something dramatic is going to be happening on the Earth. And it happens in the United States second house, which is finance. It also affects, there's some aspects with Neptune, which is hard to diagnose illnesses, you know. So I kind of had a glimpse of what was going to be happening, and it happened right on schedule. So it's not like something accidental or, you know, out of the blue that's unexpected. It's all part of the cosmic clock, so to speak. I interviewed and, a guy named, J- named Prasanan a, a couple of years ago, yeah. and he is a professional Jyotishi Vedic astrologer. Right? You're right, right. Yeah. And he's, he said, I'm, I'm getting out of the stock market. It's going to really crash in 2020. And he, I, don't, I don't understand all the terminology of Jyotish, but he also yeah. saw it coming. And I think a lot of people, I mean, I've been reading books and hearing things for 20, 30 years mm-hmm. that were c- going to reach a time when there's going to mm-hmm. be a big shakeup. And a lot of things that people think are safe and secure and solid Mm. are going to, you know, get upended. So maybe this is it. And it's a necessary phase to transition into something much better and different. Absolutely. So that's like every moment we have a choice of what we want to identify with or have our attention on. I used to do retreats, you know, have people for a weekend and everything. And I would like to start off the retreat with, we didn't actually do this physically, although I've heard of people doing it. Like, you should all go outside. I'll give you a shovel and dig your grave and stand in it, you know, and contemplate that you're going to die. This is kind of where Buddhism starts out. You know, life is short. Why are you here? This is actually... A positive use of what's going on now to contemplate your mortality. And am I going to live in fear as a victim or am I going to turn this around? 
I could become fully enlightened in the next week. And just to know that there are, like you say, this body, we're all going to die. The physical body is going to die. This is like a glove. You have your hand in a glove. You take off the glove. There's a living hand inside. So this physical body is just like that glove. We're going to step out of it. Just like in Muir Woods, I stepped out of that body. There was the flesh body sitting in the tree. I'm in another body. Perfect health. Looked just like my other body. You know, in fact, it says, I believe somewhere in the Bible, you will be given a body that's incorruptible. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Those who enter the new heaven and the new earth will have the sign of God written in their forehead and will have God in their hearts. So that's what we're working on. We should work on have God in our hearts. And there is one way to be protected. It's like I have the antidote for this virus, which is love. And to send love to other people and to get rid of judgment and condemnation. You know, a lot of these people on the spiritual path, even my best friends, have so much condemnation over various public figures, you know, anger and condemnation. That is the virus. So like attracts like. If you have malice, anger, or even judgment toward another person, that attracts virus. You know, that is the virus. So we can overcome that. One of my favorite things is actually something incredibly simple. If you see someone's pushing your buttons, just say, God bless that person. God bless them. Another thing is like St. Germain has asked me to bring some of the ancient tantric teachings into the I am. So like the violet Tara, like all the Taras, the goddess energies, they're aspects of yourself, but you can make them totally real. God manifestations, you know? Yeah, you've written a couple um, of books. I'll show the books on the screen now. Yeah, I, I am yeah. the Violet Tara, and I and am the Violet Tara in action. Right. What so, is Tara, and what yeah. is Violet Tara, and what is Tara all this? Tara is the enlightened female Buddha aspect, really, the enlightened feminine. And they have different qualities. There are 21 Taras. They usually only talk about the white Tara, green Tara, red Tara. St. Germain asked me to bring forth the violet tar. Now, she was known of a thousand years ago. There were some Taoist women who actually ascended. And they talked about the goddess of the violet mist. I thought I had invented this, or I thought St. Germain had invented it. It turns out people knew about this a long time ago. But the patriarchy sort of suppressed it. So anyway, the way Tantra works it's basically invoking God in whatever form you want. A lot of people invoke St. Germain. Well, St. Germain has this gift that he's given humanity called the violet consuming flame, which is an aspect of consciousness. You know, in the white light is violet light. If you have a prism, you can see it, but you normally don't see it. You can invoke that quality of light through your consciousness just by adjusting your frequency. You know, and again, your words help create your reality. So instead of feeling like a victim and and anticipating getting sick, you know, which after you, by the end of the day, you've read 20 news stories about everyone's, you know, being challenged. You can instead say a tube of violet light is around me. And I call on the violet consuming flame. I give a meditation where I say, 
Imagine yourself above the earth in your higher body, but you are a goddess made of violet light and you are pouring violet light down into the earth. You can cure this virus. You know, what if the thousand or thousand people that are watching now or are going to watch this all see themselves above the earth? You can say, well, it's just imagination. But in a higher sense, your your attention creates your reality. So you can call forth light. That's how Reiki works, how energy healing works. You know, you invoke it. I am the healing presence. So as soon as you say that, you're invoking that aspect of the God mind. So I do this every day. Why are there no cases of this virus in Siskiyou County? Now, maybe it's because every day I invoke Violet Tara and St. Germain to blaze the violet flame through everyone in Siskiyou County. Could be that, but check with me in a month. It could be there people have it. It hasn't been identified. Yeah, there haven't been many tests of it. But I know it's doing good. For sure, it's helping me because it keeps me full of love and optimism and forgiveness. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think that's great. Um, I think it's it's good to do mm-hmm. stuff like that and to meditate and you know mm-hmm. do all the healthy things, but also do the practical things. You know, wash your hands all the time, like they say, yeah. and don't go to parties yeah. or mix around closely yeah, with people sure. at this at this point because the human immune system has no defense against this thing. It's new, and don't touch your face. You know, we can be both. Yeah, esoteric about it and down to earth. I think at the same time, the two things, two ways of approaching it don't um, conflict with one another. I mean, I saw Ramamurti Mishra, who was an MD. You know, he was a brain surgeon. Yeah, he was there. And uh, he's the one went to Bangladesh during the cholera epidemic and was completely untouched by it. People were dropping like flies around him. He lived in the villages. So by keeping that light going, he was protected. You know, well, of course, you can, as a skeptic, can say, well, he was just lucky or something. But, you know, there are many people that have done, like Ama, for example, whose picture you have behind, she licked the wounds of a leper. Yep. Dot and healed the guy. his name, yeah. Yeah. So how did she do that? You know, you'd think that's crazy, you know, but she did it and she's fine. And she has also gotten sick before, too. I mean, she can get sick. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's good to be lofty in our thinking and, and uh, mm-hmm. do the kinds of things mm-hmm. you're saying. I think it's also good to be practical and careful. And, and if not yeah. for our own sake, mm-hmm. uh, even if we were invincible, for others' sake. Like you see these kids mm-hmm. on the news partying on the beaches in Miami and, you know, just kind yeah, of right. all mobbed together. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. so, some of them are going to get sick. But, it, but even if they didn't, they're going to go home and mix with their parents and their grandparents and everybody else. And so at this point, I, I mean, we're kind of getting off the topic here, but it's. Um... Okay, let me ask you, remember Maharishi did an experiment. I think he sent a lot of practitioners to Washington, D.C. for I a was month. one of them. Yep. You were one of them? Yeah, okay, there, I spent three months in Iran doing what you're about to yeah. describe. And yeah. the crime rate dropped during yes, that it month, did. didn't uh-huh. it? Yep. Okay, so you're using the spiritual tool to affect the consciousness of the environment. Yes. So I can send out the frequency of violet fire and all the people watching this video can send that out and 
you know, there's no way to prove it, but I, I, I know, I mean, I personally know for a fact that will help alleviate it. Oh yeah, you know? I believe you. I mean, the, the, the results from those things we did were very potent. At one time we had a group of 8,000 people meditating together and boy, you could, you could cut it with a knife. The, the, the Shakti or whatever was so thick in the air and it, and it correlated very nicely with all kinds of trends in society at that time. It was carefully studied. I mean, I have the antidote right here. I don't know if you can see. This is the violet. Now, I have an amethyst. Anybody can do this at home. This is an amethyst. Fill this with water. I pour the water in here. I put the amethyst in. I put it in the sun. I call on Violet Tara to charge this water with life-giving substance that dissolves and consumes all negative substance and heals me of whatever I need to be healed from and is immunizes me against all foreign agents by the power of God that I am. All <laughs> I need is one sip. And, uh-huh. you know, I do that every day. Everyone could, that's something positive. Everybody can do to invoke that. Yeah. Very helpful. I don't doubt it. I guess the reason I hit on this point a little bit is that somebody sent me a message a few days ago who was quite upset because some spiritual teacher was saying, oh, you don't need to bother about all this stuff they're advising, you know, quarantining. Just hug people and love them. (laughs) You know, everything's going to be fine. You know, and that, that, yeah, that's not. Well, that's an extreme, you know, it's, you know, what they say, pray to Allah, but tie your camel. Tie up your camel, right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've had the experience where I ran out of gas and my car kept going for quite some distance, longer than normal. Right. And I was praying like crazy, but I still buy gas. You still buy I don't, gas, right. I don't, I don't push that, you know what I mean? Yeah, you don't stretch it. Well, it's like with Jesus, don't tempt God, you know what I mean? Exactly. I mean, he, all, he was tempted by yeah. the devil, you know, jump yeah. off this cliff and yeah. I'll save you and I can make you the ruler yeah. of the world. And, uh, you know, I said, no, I'm not, not going to do that. I'm going to sort of abide by earthly laws. So what I would say, you know, it just, you know, I know we're, we're coming to the end of the time here, got but another 20 minutes this or is so. a very special time that we're alive now. Yeah. And this is a time when we can really advance in mastery and become liberated, you know. And part of that is, again, by tuning in to the love within ourselves and to overcome all tendencies of judgment, condemnation of others, and to Bless everyone that we can. That is our liberation. You see someone, a child in Syria suffering. Well, maybe I can't get on a plane and go there, but I can like breathe in, try to feel what that child is feeling, and then exhale love and compassion to the heart of that child. We can do that with everyone. All the people suffering, their suffering is in a sense my suffering. That doesn't mean to take it on to the point where you're suffering, but to Exhale to them rays of light from your heart that go into their hearts. You can do good that way. Even if, like, I'm in a cabin out in the woods, I can affect everyone on the planet right from here. I don't have to go to downtown Union Square in San Francisco to help people. No, we all do. I mean, you and I and everybody listening to this and everybody in the world, Mm -hmm. we're all affecting one another. We're all this Indra's web, if you've heard that term, of every yeah, every sure. point influences and is yeah. infinitely correlated with every other point in creation. And consciousness, probably we could say, is the fabric that weaves it all together, the ultimate sort of foundation that we're all rooted in mm-hmm. and through which mm-hmm. these influences propagate. 
Yeah. I'd like to share with you just something of experience I had with Ananda May Ma. I was going to ask you to tell an experience about her. There was a cool thing where you saw her and it wasn't quite real as much as you wanted. And then you had this wish to sort of walk down the road with her. I think it was New Year's Eve. I was in Varanasi. And explain who she is in case people haven't. Well, they call her the bliss permeated mother. Yeah, Nanda May Ma. And she, Yogananda, loved her. Anyway, a whole group of us that were with Ramdas Neem Krola, we went to her ashram in Benares on New Year's Eve. And it was a big ashram scene where, you know, you could go up and you could bow. And I offered her some sweets. And, and then she just, you could see she, she looked bored. You know what I mean? <laughs> you can always tell the really enlightened people because they don't care if you worship them or touch their feet. You know, anyway, they're in another realm. Anyway, but I made a wish. That someday I would see either her or some great being like her alone on the street. So I think it was like a month later, I was in Jagannath Puri. And those stores in India where they just have sacks of grain, they're like all health food stores, they're just grain. So the woman in front of me turns around and it's her. And she was buying some other stuff. So there was a sweet shop next door. I went and got some candy and gave it to her. And well, I waited for her to come out of the store and I gave it to her. So then I saw, I was trying to be respectful, but I saw we were both walking the same way and she had a, a bag of heavy groceries. So I went up to her and said, may I help you out? May I carry your groceries? And she said, no, thank you. And then, you know, I gave her the sweets and this time she accepted them. You know, supposedly she was silent, didn't talk. But she talked like a magpie when I was with her. And the funny thing is, she talked in Bengali and I talked in English. We understood each other perfectly. And she was just the sweetest woman. She was very much like Pearl. I hadn't met Pearl yet, but, you know, I looked, she was then probably 80 or something. So then I said, she, see, she had an ashram there and she was staying at the ashram. And she just wanted to be like a normal woman, go out and cook dinner for her devotees, you know? So she'd gone to the store to buy rice and stuff. So I went and told all the Ramdas crowd that I was with that I'd see. So they went to the ashram and asked to see her. And the people said, she's not here. But they knew I had seen her because they said, your energy is completely different. So the next day, I used to go to the Jagannath temple every day which is supposedly where, it was actually where Jesus used to go, if you read the Aquarian Gospel. One day I was coming back from the temple in a rickshaw, and she was on the street going the other way with three of her devotees, you know, three other women all in white. She saw me before I saw her, and um, she did the, you know, pranam, namaste, you know. Well, this energy hit me in my heart that was so powerful I stood up, almost fell out of the rickshaw, and I turned and faced her. So for a minute, we were facing each other, and she transmitted this energy to me where I felt God. You know, I felt this divine love in my heart, which was really something new for me. And I realized that when she looked at me, she was seeing God. So I went back to where I was staying, and for the next three days, I said, I want to see what she was seeing. So I meditated on my heart. And I think that took me further on the path than almost anything else. And then like a year later, 
or maybe two years later when I met Pearl, she had the same quality, you know, where she could transmit that consciously. So it's like when you visualize that sun in your heart, when you're feeling that divine love and you look at another person, I frequently do this with people. Even now, you and I are looking at each other and I'm looking into the eyes of all the people that are watching this. I am the son of God, not my ego. The son of God is in my heart. You know, I think and like put it here, you know, and that sun is sending rays of light to everyone. So I am divine love going from my heart to your heart. And I feel from your heart, I feel a ray of light from your heart to my heart. So that's acknowledgement. That's literally what namaste means. The God in me honors the God in you. And I feel that. We're not actually separated by a thousand miles. I'm right there in the room with you. You know, etherically, we are together. So I feel your presence, you feel my presence energetically. And everyone watching this, I am sending that love and God consciousness out to everyone, and I am receiving it back. And from the groups I've done online, I know that this works. And we can include whoever we want in this, St. Germain, Yogananda, Amma, Mother Mary. Just feel them around us. And it's by the door to that is really here. That's the ultimate path, I feel, on the spiritual path is to bring the God consciousness into the body as a human being. You know, you look at the Star of David, the six-point star. It's bringing the heavenly and the earthly together in the heart. You know, that's where it's the Christ consciousness is realized there as a human being. It's not in leaving the body or being in samadhi. It's bringing it in as a human being to be a compassionate, loving human being. That's great. Very nicely put. I have a few, yeah, a few more questions yeah. I want to ask you, and we, maybe we have sure. time for a story. Which story would you rather tell? Healing by the Space <laughs> Brothers or Joseph Sunhawk at Taos Pueblo? Oh, man. You're jarring my memory here. Oh, you don't have to tell either of them. If you don't well, want I'll either. talk about the Space Brothers since okay. they are going to play a part in our salvation. These are our ancestors, actually. How did we get to Earth anyway? You know, I don't buy the Darwin thing that we evolved out of single-celled organisms. We may come into animal bodies, but we come from someplace else. So whether it's the Pleiades or Sirius, wherever, I have memories of, and so did Pearl, getting off a spaceship maybe 100,000 years ago. Well, first, let me, let me jump to the important experience that I had was many years ago, I was up at Lake Louise in Canada, and I had an out-of-the-body experience. My physical body was asleep, but I was taken into a spacecraft, and St. Germain was on that craft. And he took me up. We went up over the top of the Earth, down into the North Pole, and there's another world inside the Earth where there's an inner sun. Now, the Buddhists would call this Shambhala, or there's a lot of disagreement over where it is. But I've had the experience of another world at a different, again, a different frequency, you know, there. True. It's not something that geologists are going to find, but on a different level, different frequency. Yeah. Okay. I don't know exactly what that frequency is. But anyway, as uh, as I was in this ship, St. Germain gave me one of the few 
he, he never makes predictions for me or channels about my future. He did that once and I didn't like anything he said. <laughs> right. Like changing the name to Peter Mount Shasta. Yeah, right? yeah. He said the spacecraft are very important in the future destiny of the Earth because a time will arrive on the surface of the Earth when certain portion of humanity need to be evacuated. And, you know, this ties in with a lot of other things. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. The people that will go into the new heaven and the new earth will have God in their hearts and the sign of God in their forehead. Some people need to, whatever people need to experience is what they will get. So it's up to each individual. Do I need to experience the lower frequency, the old heaven and the old earth, or the new heaven and the new earth? So. St. Germain was showing me, again, this cooperation between what we call the Ascended Masters and the space beings. They're all working together. The space beings are not what you'd say Ascended Masters yet. They're very masterful, but they're also working on their spiritual unfoldment and enlightenment. Oh, you asked about the healing. That was another experience I had. That was actually my final healing from India, where I was still sick from drinking from the Ganges. One afternoon, I said, I've had it. I'm just, I, you know, I'd been living on millet and yogurt. That's all my stomach could handle. I finally said, I've had it. I went into town, had a few beers, went to a soul food place, had soul food, coffee, chocolate cake, whatever. Came home and I figured I'm probably going to die tonight. And I just completely surrendered. And I said, God, I'm in your hands. Well, the next thing I know, I'm on board this spaceship. It's like a hospital ship. And they said, we circle the earth, healing people where we can, like where their karma allows it. They had me stand in front of this machine that had plates that went against me. They turned it on and all my chakras lit up. I could see my chakras. And it felt great. I said, this is fantastic. Keep it going. And they said, well, we have to be careful. We don't want to burn your chakras out. And then it was just like a doctor's office. There was someone with a clipboard. And they said, go sit down over there. We'll observe you for half an hour. Then we'll beam you back down. I woke up in the morning. I was in perfect health. That was it. Total healing. You know? That was the end of your dysentery. That was it. Yeah. That's great. Cool. All right, here's a question that is actually in the beginning of your second book. What are some of the perils of the path and how can we avoid them? Well, the most obvious peril of the path is thinking that because you've achieved certain things or experienced certain things that you're superior to other people. Pride goes before a fall, they say. Exactly. (laughs) That's the most seductive part. And I I see some teachers who you know, have quite large following and there's a lot of pride about their trip. Or even practitioners, you know, like, who is that guy who did those, does those funny videos? Like, my oh, guru is more enlightened. J.P. Sears. My guru is more enlightened than your guru. He's or, been on you know, that, that gap, yeah. That feeling that you're above other people or beyond or that you have it all together. Ultra spiritual, he calls himself. He has a book, uh, yeah, 12 and a Half Tips for Becoming Ultra Spiritual. <laughs> Yeah. Or even like you see somebody homeless in the street and you think, well, you know, they must have bad karma. I'm glad I'm not around them. Until we have compassion for everyone. I don't know who it was that 
you have to be more humble in the dust. But you can't fake it. You can't fake that. You have to feel it. You know, I got to know Ramdas, you know, after we actually came back from India, and he developed that really, even though people worshipped him and loved him, he had that humility, I think, toward the end, you know. Yeah, he really did. And he did a lot of Seva. He had the Seva Foundation, and he was working with um, Ashley Brilliant or something, helping to uh, Uh, cure people of blindness in India and stuff. He really knocked himself out doing that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, so, you know, that's, that's the greatest trap, I think. At the end of my book on the Violet Tara, if you feel this path is too complicated, the Tantra or something, do it. You know, Jesus, like his disciples said, Ten Commandments are too much. He said, well, just love one another and basically just, you know, love one another and see, see God in everybody. And what you do unto the least of my little ones, you do unto me, you know. And um, I think that's the answer. You know, go out and do something like buy someone groceries if they can't go to the store or just talking to somebody who's lonely is a tremendous service. A lot of people feel, what can I do? You know, well, just look around, even smiling to someone who's down, you know, or just there's so many things every day, opportunities for us to be friendly or help somebody else, or even to think kindly of someone. Like every day I send love, pink light and violet light down into all the capitals of the earth, all the government's world leaders, you know, even if you are skeptical and saying that's not doing anything, at least it's changing me. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Get out of the judgment. It's the judgment that does people in. That's beautiful. Very good. You know, that person's in duality. That person's being material. That person is so materialistic. Like they're reading a tuna fish sandwich. They couldn't be enlightened, you know? (laughs) Yeah. That's a tricky one, you know, because there's some, I don't know, the way I get around that, like, for instance, you have lavished a lot of praise on Chogrim Rinpoche. He died of alcoholism in his 40s. And yeah. He was a yeah. mess by the time he died. He was just brain yeah, damaged yeah. and delirious and all kinds of problems. Yeah. Yet he came out with a lot of profound stuff. And I don't yeah. know, the way I come to terms with that, and that's just one mm-hmm. example of many, is that everybody's a work in progress, including me, of course. And that you, know, you can have sure. a, a great degree of development in certain areas, but it doesn't mean you've completely blossomed in all the yeah. various yeah. facets in which a human being can blossom. Yeah. So you know, we continue on and he'll learn lessons in his next life. Exactly. Now, you know, Trungpa was... One of the most, he was like catalyst, you know what I mean, for yeah. growth. But he said, don't, don't imitate me, it'll kill you. Yeah, what right. killed, him, killed him? Yeah. You know, being, yeah, yeah. But still, oh my gosh, the things, you know, people would try to copy, like, my shrine should be laid out exactly like this. And then they would find out, and then he'd change it a month later. Well, which is the right way? How should it be? And, you know, he would play with people's minds to help them wake up. You know, he, he was one of the, what they call crazy, crazy wisdom teachers. But he said, um, the wisdom comes first, the crazy comes later. Yeah. <laughs> Don't just go be crazy, you know, think. But anyway, yeah. so the important thing is about gurus is to take them as a catalyst, not try to copy them or idolize their ego. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, And then that's another thing about getting rid of ego. You need the ego to function. The ego is like 
your car, it's a vehicle to get from place to place. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a tool. The question is identifying with it or, or worshiping the ego. So. I see it as a function, like like eyesight yeah. is a function and hearing yeah. is a function. Okay, yeah. well, a sense of, of personal identity is a function mm. without which the eyesight and the hearing and all that wouldn't have a mm. common center mm-hmm. through which to function. Mm-hmm. But if we assume that that's all we are or that's what we are, Mm-hmm. then we're kind of, we've sque- tried to squeeze the whole ocean into a drop and it, it's not going to be comfortable. That's true. Yeah. Well, I got the essence of the ocean here and a lot of drops. You know, a lot so. of drops. Anyway. I mean, what do you do these days that people could interact with if, you know, you well, do my webinars, website, your, your books, of uh, course. Yeah. yeah, well, the website, iamteachings.com, i-am-teachings.com. People can contact me through that. There are 22 YouTube videos out there. There is a Violet Tara uh, Facebook group. People have to get the book first, you know, the Violet Tara, and then they'll be asked the question instead of to test. It's for people who is reading the book, not just for people who want to drop in and say something. So there are a lot of ways, or, you know, people can come to Mount Shasta, but I wouldn't suggest doing that right now. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, we're supposed to quarantine. So, yeah, so I would I'll, say I'll, first I'll, thing is read the books because especially that book too, Apprentice to the Masters, it's a unique book. Unveiled Mysteries that Godfrey Ray King wrote is, I would say, one of the most amazing. That is an incredible book. But you have to realize most of that is other plane experiences, not physical stuff. My book is about actual experiences I had where I interacted with St. Germain and where I met actually these two masters behind me, Kutumi and El Muri, I met them in physical form. And, you know, you get a little bit of an understanding if you want to work with the masters, how they work with people to achieve mastery. You know, they told me, you know, I wanted to ascend and they said, get your real estate license. (laughs) That's not what I wanted to hear. (laughs) You know, because Being in the real world is where you become a master. Being in relationship. I wanted to be celibate. I was celibate for a long time. Then they said, we want you to get married. And I went, oh, no, I thought that was delusional. Well, now it's time for this part of the training, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You don't know. These, these books are a lot of fun. I've I read the first yeah. one it's in, in its entirety and most of the second one. And... uh they're they're pretty big books, but they're very readable. You know, yeah. very well written. Uh, I was impressed with the way you re- you had to probably reconstruct conversations you yeah. had had twenty thirty oh, four, yeah, years well, ago, but you did a good job reconstructing them, and it's a, a you. You know, very nice, a lot of fun to read. The so, funny thing is that book about my experiences with the masters was put together at Krishnamurti's house. I was he wasn't there as long after he died, but I was invited to stay there. And I did a retreat at his house in Ojai. And I thought, this is really funny because he said, forget about the masters. Now I'm right. I'm in his house and I'm writing about the masters. Yeah, he had a, he, he didn't like the whole guru scene very much. Well, that's because he was abused by his teachers as a child. And he spent his whole life talking against teachers, you know, unfortunately. Well, yeah. um, I'll link to all this yeah. stuff that you've just mentioned from the page that I'll okay. create for you on BatGap. Okay. So I'll link to your website and your books yeah. and anything else you want me to link to. And people can just go there yeah. and then hop from there over to your site or your books or whatever they want to do. Or 
tune in through the ethers, you know? Yeah, that too. <laughs> People are telling me they... Some guy called the other day. He said, I had a dream the other day. I've never met this guy. He said, you talked to me in a dream and gave me, told me what to do. So he's phoning me. He got my phone number from someone and says, what should I do? And I said, I don't know. Do what you got in the dream. Why are you calling me now? Dreams can be powerful. I've most powerful yeah. experience I ever had was in a dream. It doesn't seem like a, yeah. really a dream when you have those things. It's, it's, we call it a yeah. dream because it happens when the body is asleep, yeah. but it's something more than a dream. Yeah. And I just want to thank you and Irene and, and your backup team for the work you're doing because you're a real catalyst for a lot of people. You give a transmission also yourself, which is you know not only a product of who you are, but your training and your your own inner work. So, um, you know, I feel that emanating from you. So, you know, it's it's a blessing and a great service that you're doing for people. Well, you know how it feels. It just it feels like mm. you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, and it's uh, you're grateful to be able to do it. And it's not you doing it. You're kind of like a yeah. conduit for for something bigger yeah. and just a matter Great. of being a sort of a servant of God, I guess we could say. So thanks, Peter. Great meeting you. If, if we all live through this, uh, wherever out in Mount Shasta, we'll definitely meet. Oh, please do. <laughs> no, we're, we're all going to be living for eternity. You know, we're going to see each other in many other planes. You know, that I know for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's like, this some, you is know, just the, a dream. You're going to wake up and you go, you know what? God was bored. You know, I've been in samadhi for a million years. I'd like to experience another reality. Let's create duality and good and evil, right and wrong, male and female, all this stuff, and play around in it for a while. Yeah, I was just going to say that when you said, oh, yeah, we'll meet in other realms and there's all this. It's like, it's the whole thing is like this great play. You know, the word Leela means play. God's having a blast. Exactly. Everyone should keep that in mind. You know, we're going to wake up someday. Wow, wasn't that a trip? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, yeah. we could go on and on, but uh, okay. yep. we'll wrap yep. it up. So thanks for having this conversation with me, and thanks to those who've been Likewise. listening to it. Yeah. And uh, we will see you for the next one. And if, if you would like to visit Batcap and you know, avail yourselves of the things that are there, please do so. There's a, you can sign up for an audio podcast or subscribe to the email newsletter to get notified when there's new interviews or, you know, some other things on the site, poke around through the menus and you'll see them. So again, thanks for listening or watching. And thank you again, Peter. And we'll see you around. See you for the next one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Peter. Namaste. Namaste.